Dear listeners, just a quick note before we get started, we now have a Patreon page. If you've been enjoying these episodes and would like to show your support, please visit patreon.com slash Sarah Henlicky Wilson, where you can donate monthly or on a recurring basis to support the show. We'd really appreciate it. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about a poetic paraphrase of the Sermon on the Mount that Sarah has put together and published. Sarah, tell us a little bit about your project. Well, Dad, you are ultimately responsible for it. You may be surprised to hear. But as you recall, last year, our very last episode of the first season of Queen of the Sciences was on the Sermon on the Mount. And I have to admit a certain level of... uh, disappointments or lack of enthusiasm. It just seemed like, oh, right, Sermon on the Mount. Everybody knows Sermon on the Mount, blah, blah, blah. And um, and then in preparation for reading over for the episode, I read over it and I just like, I, I couldn't, I almost couldn't engage with it because it the familiarity level was just too high. It felt like the the background proverbs of Western civilization, which of course is a testimony to how incredibly important the Sermon on the Mount has been, but it wasn't um, for my own uh, uh, faith development, let's say, it was not particularly helpful to have it over familiar. But it did sort of like put the bug in my ear to to try to take this more seriously and especially to try, take more seriously the challenge of hearing it afresh, which is what I was trying to do in this book. And so how did you go about listening to the Sermon on the Mount afresh? Well, fortunately, I had two extra impetuses to do that. Um, one is that um, there was supposed to be this past uh, June 2020 a conference uh, sponsored by the Center for Catholic and Evangelical Theology on the Sermon on the Mount, and they invited me to give a talk about it, specifically about preaching it. So I had that um, lecture to prepare. But then, of course, I thought, well, if I'm going to talk about preaching the Sermon on the Mount, I should actually preach the Sermon on the Mount. And since it was a Matthew year in the lectionary um, in back in January and February, uh, although the lectionary that we use here in Japan didn't quite get all the way through it, and maybe not in the the U.S. edition either. Um, I just decided to slice it up so I could read out loud, like like literally preach the Sermon on the Mount by reading the text from the pulpit during the service, and then, you know, offer my, my sermon on the Sermon on the Mount afterwards. And so that really forced me to... Um, to dig into it more deeply because I had to be able to, you know, both um, convey it to my, my people, my congregation in a meaningful way. And then, you know, just the sheer responsibility of giving a lecture. And that's when I just started to, to play around with it. I, I went back and I looked at the Greek and I found some, some fun little details that began to, you know, just sort of uh, reanimate my interest. So for example, in the, um, the bit about salt. Uh, though in my my uh, paraphrase here, I have you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt turns stupid, how will it get resalted? The salutary thing is to fling it out. <laughs> the salutary thing is to sling it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and you know, stupid like that doesn't make any sense. Why does salt get stupid? But that actually is what the Greek literally says. It's moronthe, which is the the passive form of um 
like the word moron. <laughs> That's actually literally right, right. what it says. And I discovered that there's like an ancient association of of witty or intelligent language being salty. So that's the idea. That's the, you know, the salt the salt has lost its savor. That's how we usually hear it. And you can, you know, like, okay, unsalty salt. But, you know, it's just so much more startling. It, it brought it to life for me to think about it getting stupid as that being the the literal meaning. And so that, that really made a difference is to just kind of pick my way slowly through the, the Greek. Another example is where it says, um, keep it hidden. Uh, that That's my translation. But, you know, like the, your prayers or your almsgiving to keep those hidden. Well, the Greek is cryptic, you know, like cryptography or, or a crypt or, uh, you know, the word cryptic we use in English. I didn't end up using that in the English translation. But again, just uh, having that just slightly different sense and, you know, the the use of Greek and English started to make the, the, the text itself start to come back to life for me. That's really a cool experience. And one of the reasons why classically we've always required preachers of the word to learn the biblical languages of Hebrew and Greek, because, you know, I had this experience I think I've talked about in previous episodes when I actually, as a doctoral student, read and reread the Gospel of Mark in Greek for my seminar with J. Lewis Martin the scales fell from my eyes and I began to see clearly, you know, what the, yeah. what that gospel was up to. And I don't think you can have that experience in a translation because you're missing too many uh, clues, literary clues that are embedded in the original language. Yeah, that's so true. And so that's why I, you know, I'm clear that this is a paraphrase and a poetic paraphrase at that, because I'm not trying to give a, a better or more accurate translation. I mean, most standard uh, English Bibles now, I mean, there's different translation philosophies, but they'll they'll give you as good as they can while really keeping faithful to the text. And obviously, there's there's a primacy towards the, both the original text in its original language and the most faithful translation you can get in your target language. But it doesn't necessarily like wake it up for you, whether or not uh, you have a problem of overfamiliarity. So if I can just give an, another example here, um, when Jesus talks about wolves and sheep's clothing, you know, it, it, it's towards the end of the sermon. It's embedded in a lot of other things. It's easy just to pass it over. So I, I greatly expanded it. So now it reads, look out for pseudo prophets working through the countryside, sneaking up alongside, sheep on the outside, wolves on the inside, greedy at your graveside. Obviously, <laughs> Jesus doesn't say all that, but it, it gives a kind of, I was trying to give a momentousness to it that a single sentence passed over quickly would not give you. Wow. Yeah. So it's a, you're saying it's a liter. if I can put words in your mouth, it's a literary paraphrase which is an active interpretation on your part to bring out the import of your fresh reading of the Sermon on the Mount in the original Greek. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And then also trying to add a different kind of literary flavor to it because the 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 proverbial quality it's taken on tends to to damp it down. So I, I wanted to give a, a different, uh, you know, still a literary feeling to it, but a different cast. If Here, if I can read a, a different one. This, this is one of my favorites. Don't damn so you won't be damned. For what you damn up will be denied you too, and the meter you meet out will be meted out to you. <laughs> 
Right, and you you pun on these etymologies very nicely. I mean these these cognate terms, right? Right, right, uh, yeah. In the English language, to uh, but isn't the Greek there meros? As I'm remembering correctly, that's the measure is meros, isn't it? Right. So I liked the idea of using a meter, which is a very obviously modern kind of measurement. And I looked it up and actually meet out in English, M-E-T-E, uh, has no actually etymological relationship to the word meter. It just it just sounded fun to put it together like that. <laughs> but uh, but I mean, that's the idea. I mean, some of these um, are, are, are more serious and some are a little bit more silly. But the idea, my feeling was that I needed to be kind of jolted in order to hear the meaning, to, to get out of the sleepiness of the familiarity. And uh, so that's what I was trying to do. And, you know, uh, readers may vary in their appreciation of whether any particular experiment worked. They're not all the same. Some are, are much more closely literal. Some, like with the wolves in sheep's clothing, are, are, are more expanded. Some are actual poems. Um, some are not. Some depend more on the what you see on the page, how they're arranged. Well, you know, there's a couple of passages that I really liked, like the one about that you called the twig and the beam. Why don't you read that one to us? Oh, sure. Yeah, let me find this. Uh, it's it's basically, although with it, without images, it's uh, basically a flow chart. So I'll read it. Do you see a twig in your brother's eye? Yes. Have you checked your own eye? No. Check it. Is there a beam in your eye? No. Check again. Is there a beam in your eye? Yes. Remove it. Is the beam still in your eye? Yes. Try again. Is the beam still in your eye? No. Is the twig still in your brother's eye? Yes. Remove it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's really cute, a, a little dialogue there. Another one I really liked a lot was how you paraphrased the whole section about being of little faith and being filled with anxiety. Be not anxious on the morrow is the English translation that is in, sticks in my head. How did you do that? Right. Uh, here, I'll, this, there's a couple that go together here, so I'll, I'll start with uh, sparrows and read through tomorrow. Don't pull yourself apart with, what'll I eat or what'll I wear? Isn't your soul greater than its sustenance and your figure than its finery? Sparrows don't sow. Robins don't reap. Blackbirds don't build barns. Yet your Father in heaven harbors the birds of heaven under his wings. You goose, aren't you worth more than a warbler? Does pulling yourself apart add height to your heels? And concerning clothing, why pull yourself apart? Learn from the lilies, which, without spinning or sewing, grow. What I'm saying is, even Solomon, in all his fancy finery, couldn't compare to a simple speedwell or a plain old pink. So, if God decks out the dandelions and daffodils that are blooming today and mown down tomorrow, won't he do more for you? Such feeble faith! So don't pull yourself apart with, what'll we eat, or what'll we drink, or what'll we wear? The heathen are always on the hunt for these things, as if your father in heaven didn't already know you need them. First, scope out your father's kingdom and survey his righteousness. Then, all these things will be annexed to your acreage. So don't pull yourself apart over tomorrow. Tomorrow can pull itself apart just fine on its own. Today's troubles <laughs> are more than enough. So how did you come up with this trans this 
expression, pull yourself apart. Uh, yeah, I've, I've got another appreciative comments on that one. Um, actually, again, it came from the Greek. I can't remember what the Greek actually is now, but I was looking at the word and it, it's translated as worry. But if you look at its, you know, its etymological roots, it has that sense of things being pulled apart at the seams or, you know, stretching or yeah. And I just thought that was, you know, again, worry. It's it's an over familiar term and especially in this in this uh, particular biblical context but I liked the the visuals of being uh, pulled <laughs> and I think that's how people often feel, feel you know nowadays that they're just being yanked in every di- different direction but that we also do it to ourselves huh, that's interesting I wonder if you could have said don't be pulled apart by these concerns rather than I think because it means worry it suggests that it's something that you're doing to yourself but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, right. or like a middle uh, a middle verb with both active and passive components to it, maybe a deponent verb in Greek. Etymologies always have their limits because things take on a meaning with use that aren't necessarily the pieces it came from. But you said, I think I you mentioned to me in conversation about this that at the very center of the Sermon on the Mount is the passage about the eye as the lamp of the body, something like that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's obviously, literally, the way the Sermon on the Mount got put down, obviously, there's a long process of tradition that's stitching things together and and Matthew doing his final redaction on it. So, you know, I I, I don't need Jesus to have delivered these words in exactly this order and exactly this way on the mountain for it to be truly the Lord's own speech. (laughs) But, um, and so as a result, there's something a little bit artificial about trying to say this is the theme or the point of the whole Sermon on the Mount. But obviously, if you spend a lot of time with the text, at some point, something becomes like your your interpretive key and, and sheds light on the whole thing. And so for me, that really became what is almost, I mean, the, the textual dead center of it um, is this passage. I'll read, the lamp of your life is your eye. So if your eye is laser focused, your whole being is bright. But if your eye is evil, your whole being is dark. So if the light in you is darkness, how great the darkness. I used to say that still gives me goosebumps. And I think that the imagery is so unbelievably powerful. And I, I, I again, I never noticed it before it, it flashed by too quickly. But if the light in you is darkness, I mean, it's it's not just a matter of being bad. It's a matter of your badness presenting itself as goodness. And that makes it it's not just wrong, it's twisted. Like it's gone from, from uh, you know, I don't know, like selfish and, and lazy and inconsiderate to actually perverse and corrupt and rejoicing in wrongdoing to in a, in a, there's a kind of, I don't know, it gives me a sense of, of a sickness that's beyond just badness, I guess. And I think that that does shed light on the on his whole on Jesus critique of piety that is pretending to be light and is actually darkness. But it would it's I think it's easy for us nowadays to dismiss this as, you know, oh, the, the Jews with their 
their legalistic piety, which is one of the reasons why I I actually, uh, although reader or listeners are used to my emphasizing the Judaic aspects of the Christian faith, in this case, I actually muted them except for the reference to Solomon because I didn't want it to be easy to, to push these problems off onto Judaism, but to see that this is a the, the human condition of not just being dark, but having your light itself be darkness. Of course, our, the depth of our human predicament is that we are all righteous in our own eyes. We are all uh, focused on the good. And certainly the focus I have on the good justifies my means to that end. And who are you to challenge me when I'm doing what I think is good? And th- as if we could be the judges of our own cases. And we're not to be judged by our creator and redeemer. So I think, you know, very simply, this problem of of being righteous in your own eyes, according to your own lights, uh, being focused on the good that you think is good, and so forth. These are the deep, uh, the the deep, the depth of the human predicament. uh, That how do we ever get out? of this self-referential, self-justifying syndrome and see ourselves truly. I think that the Sermon on the Mount as a whole is telling us to see ourselves as our Father in Heaven sees us, who is not deceived by superficial appearances, but searches and judges the heart. Yeah, yeah, beautifully put. And I, I think this is really true. I've never been convinced by by epic stories where the bad guy is just bad for the sheer delight of being bad. It just, I mean, there's got to be some people like that. But uh, to me, the much more, the the real and present danger we experience is people who are convinced they are doing good and will stop at nothing to accomplish their good. That that to me is so much scarier and so much harder to fight. You know, like an, a, a a villain who knows that he's bad. You, you can you can still reason with. <laughs> you know, you might disagree about where you're going, but but uh, someone who is pursuing evil in the name of good, it's it's to me that's a train that almost can't be stopped. That's right. Yeah. I also like, you know, you actually brought this out to me. I, I probably had learned it years ago, but forgotten it. This, um, the Sermon on the Mount is presupposing this ancient ophthalmology in which the eye actually sends out its, its laser, its beams, and that's how vision occurs, that the eye is really functions like a lamp. Uh, you know, the, the ophthalmology is, of course, scientifically wrong. But metaphorically, what a, a, a important way to look at, again, the human predicament. We all have our eyes on the good. We're all looking for the good that we do not already have. Uh, Aristotle, first sentence of the Nicomachean Ethics, all by nature seek the good. We're all, metaphorically, we're all shining our lights on what we think will be good so that we can pursue the prize. Uh, and of course, Jesus, with this metaphor, is saying, if your prize really is the kingdom of God and its righteousness, then you will reflect what is truly good uh, uh, in your in your life and behavior. Uh, so maybe we could switch over to that passage where you paraphrased, uh, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. 
I think you read that earlier, but let's take one more look at that. Sure, and and just on the way there, dare I say that the uh, the ancient ophthalmology being used here is actually the presence of imputative justification in Matthew of all unlikely places, because the implication is that that what you see, therefore the light you project from your eye onto something actually creates the reality in it. So if you are looking upon something and making it light, it becomes light. And if it becomes, if you are looking on it and it's darkness, it becomes darkness. There is this tremendous power in the the force of perception, both on you and on the object that you're looking at, that I think uh, has has deep, uh, maybe faint, but deep resonances with the, the kind of um, reckoning that Paul talks about in his letters, obviously in a very different form. Yeah, and I'll just comment there quickly that that's how, following the Eastern tradition, that's how I take image and likeness of God, that we're all made to mirror God, to be images of God, but we can fill up that mirror which we are, we can fill up that eye with also with unlikeness to God, which would be the darkness, rather than likeness to God, which would be the light which is why the Sermon on the Mount also says you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That is to say, if you're looking upon the one who sends his rain and sunshine on the good and evil alike. Right, right. Yeah, that, that's a very powerful metaphor of vision. And, you know, there's there's nothing creepier than looking in a distorted mirror. I mean, that's kind of like in a funhouse, uh, an entertaining thing, but you'd only do it for brief entertainment. To have to look at a distorted version of your face every day would be horrifying. So you, you wanted to go back to this. Uh, um, so first, scope out your father's kingdom and survey his righteousness. Then all these things will be annexed to your acreage. Yeah, and then, of course, associated with that or the, the way you paraphrased, you cannot serve two masters. Right. So I have here, I'll read that. You can't obey two lords at the same time. You'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll support the one and undermine the other. You can't obey both God and gold. God and gold. <laughs> right. Well said. Well, this is what a what a interesting little project this is. And did you actually recite this in English to your congregation? <laughs> no, I hadn't finished it by then. I do have up on YouTube the five sermons, and I have written the lecture for the conference, which maybe in twenty twenty one will will take place. Um, but no, I, I haven't actually done a, a public presentation of it. Though I mean, if the conference happens again, I think I'll I'll start with that because the idea is to you know preach the sermon, and the first preaching of the sermon is just the literal preaching of the words before you know I yeah. or anyone else add our own commentary to it. I, th I think that'll just be dynamic, just to, to read the paraphrase, the poetic paraphrase that you've made, and let that sink in, and then, then go on to your uh, lecture about what you've just done. <laughs> that'll be, be very cool. Great. Yeah, it really it really did give the Sermon on the Mount back to me. So, uh, you know, I, th there's obviously something specific to actually wrestling with the, the text directly, but I hope that anyone else who uh, who picks it up will in have that experience, too. So um, I'll just mention if if uh, listeners would like to have a look, um, you can if you go to thornbushpress.com, that's my new independent uh, publishing venture. Um, you can actually just download the whole text. You don't have to buy it, um, but you can also buy paperback and hardback copies um, through that site. Um, or you can just go to my regular sarahhenlickywilson.com site and then it will direct you on your way to find it. All right, Sarah, thanks very much. And I hope we've uh, 
inspired and provoked uh, listeners to uh, go and read and refresh their acquaintance with the Sermon on the Mount through this new vehicle. Great. Thanks, Dad.